that we're deglobalizing because globalization from 1971 onwards meant the petrodollar system. Basically, America will provide protection for the Saudis in uh, in the open seas, and in exchange for this protection, the Saudis will provide cheap oil to America's allies. And when you see President Xi brokering a normalization deal between Iran and Saudis, that tells you the agent of progress in the Middle East, the agent of change, the agent of democracy, is now not just the United States. Now de-dollarization. In, in the world of, of deglobalization, when you deconstruct these supply chains, when you don't need to trade in one currency um, uh, for oil and, and most other international invoices, and when the United States is not uh, protecting so many other countries, the other countries are looking for other sugar daddies, other uh, countries that, that they can uh, that can provide them with the protection, with the military aid, with weaponry, etc. And that is where the alternatives, like a China, like a Russia, these are the alternatives. And now the de-dollarization begins. I don't think it's a de-dollarization that's going to immediately jump over to other currencies just because um, the other currencies are, are just not as good. The dollar is the best currency, the best fiat currency. Um, so I do think that there's an uh, an intermediary period where gold is going to be de facto uh, like like a standard, but chosen by the free markets. And you're already seeing it. I think that gold is going to go um, much higher in this intermediary period, uh, meaning in the next four or five years. And as this reset that we're going through, it's it's basically a giant reset. Um, as As we end it, at the end of it, there will be an event. There will be a meeting. There will be a G7 meeting, a G20 meeting, a UN resolution, something that will ink a new currency order. And I do think it will have a dollar component to it. I just think that it will have uh, two components to it, a dollar component to it and sort of a an alternative component to it. And there will be some sort of a um, an exchange ratio between the two blocks. Welcome to this RTD interview. Today, I'm excited to have returning guest, Mr. Lior Gantz, the founder and creator of the Wealth Research Group. Today, he's joining us to share his thoughts on the economy, as well as geopolitical events, as well as possible investment opportunities for the future. So, Lior, welcome back to RTD interviews. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Leo, I appreciate you as always taking time to uh, connect with the RTD audience to share your insights and thoughts on what's happening. And, of course, lots of things have unfolded since we last spoke. And so, as we get ready to wrap up Q1, uh, what are some things that uh, perhaps you're keeping an eye on or some things that concerns you or perhaps excites you about current events happening around the world these days? For me, number one is whether or not um, the Fed has noticed what's happening at a point where the free markets are already headed towards a recession. Uh, and that's uh, a real interesting um scenario because if they start cutting into a recession um historically that has brought on um the worst parts of the bear market and what's interesting about it is if you look at the bear markets of the past 100 years their length has been 290 days which is less than one year right it's a uh, uh, just just shy of 10 months this bear market 
has been going on uh, since November 4th, 2021 on the NASDAQ and since January 3rd, 2022 on uh, the S&P 500. So it, it, no matter how you look at it, uh, it's been going on for over a year and it's not as deep and as severe as previous bear markets. In fact, the Dow Jones barely hit uh, bear market territory during this period. And so we didn't have, we, we still have not had this collapse at the end. Um, and so between all of that, uh, that's the one thing that I really uh, think is worrisome, whether or not we've seen the landing uh, of the real economy yet um, and what uh, this, uh, what's happening right now, will it impact uh, GDP towards negative and we'll have uh, a, a mild recession at the second half of the year, which will impact housing. We'll have more layoffs, etc. Uh, so that's the one thing I really care about and I really am curious uh, about. Um, secondly, uh, another threat is uh, the resurgence of fighting in uh, Russia and the Ukraine. Um, because in May, uh, obviously, they're going to accelerate again once the, the mud season is, is over. And I think that What's important here is one, how America reacts, two, how China reacts, and three, whether or not um, this will actually cause some agricultural products to be in shortage. And we'll have like IMF bailouts, uh, World Bank loans, stuff that we haven't seen in like 12, 13 years. So those are the two things that I um, that are really the most interesting to me in terms of risks. All right. Understandable. Now, just to piggyback on the first one you mentioned about uh, the Federal, Federal Reserve pivoting too soon or too fast, leading to a recession. But too then again, late. Too late. I'm sorry. Yeah. But then again, they're not the only ones. It's also doing the quantitative tightening, quasi quantitative tightening because of the banking contagion. It looks like it's spreading throughout the U.S. We have what four banks, five banks so far going through some backstop measurements and new creation of tools or extension of tools. But then again, it's starting to leak into Europe with Credit Suisse and things of that nature. So all central banks are on the same pathway. And so will we be facing a global recession, global or something beyond that, if they continue this pathway based upon what, you, what you're seeing now? Um, the, when central banks do quantitative tightening um, or, or when they restrict credit and shrink their balance sheets in order to create e equilibrium again, in the in the credit markets and in order to um, balance risk and reward and, and create a more balanced economy um, after bubbles or after inflationary flares etc uh, they their strategy is basically to do the transition as smoothly as possible and therefore they communicate everything that they want to do well in advance, well, well in advance. And if the market doesn't respond, in other words, if the market thinks that they're bluffing, then they emphasize it more and more and more until the market understands that they are for real. Even so, some bankers um, thought they were bluffing, but gambled with depositors' money. Um, so that's one thing that, that happened. Classic a mismanagement of, of assets. Um, and then it reaches a point where when the Fed tests these limits of the economy, 
um, by raising interest rates uh, uh, gradually, they get to a point where the free markets uh, can't sustain it anymore. And the first breaking points happen. And if uh, in capitalism, uh, we don't telegraph anything. If there's a repricing of anything, it happens immediately. And that's what happens. That's what happened with the regional banks. The regional banks had depositors, money as liabilities. They had assets, on the other hand, had more assets than liabilities. But those assets uh, didn't reflect the short-term needs of depositors. Depositors needed a lot of liquidity. The assets on hand were long-term bonds. Long-term bonds lose value um, if you need to sell them prematurely. In, an, in a higher rate environment. And therefore... At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If held to maturity, SVB would have been fine. But if they needed to liquidate an asset prematurely, like a 10-year bond or a five-year bond, which is down 50% on its face value, it's still yielding the same interest rate. In other words, if held to maturity, it would not lose a cent. You'd get all the principal back. But if you have liquidity issues because of depositors, you need to sell it at a loss and you're done. So the mismanagement was that you couldn't hold long-term assets, which are uh, uh, which are riskier in a in an interest rate rising environment, and they did. And so when you reach that point where the limits have been tested and there's a credit event in the economy, it almost serves uh, in the eyes of the markets in the eyes of, the, of Wall Street as an aggressive rate hike. The SVB and other banks failing is almost like the Fed overnight raising rates by another percent. It's a shock to the markets, which say, hey, we've ended interest rate hikes. And that's what started to get priced in to the market, the end of interest rates hikes. And as we've seen, March uh, was 25 basis point, and they haven't said anything about May being another rate hike. So the, the language has completely changed. And if you look at uh, what's called the CME Fed Watch Tool, uh, which basically for, uh, shows where bond traders are in terms of the rest of the year, um, then the latest bond traders are uh, predicting a rate cut is the July meeting. Before SVB, there were no rate cuts scheduled for 2023. So in, in essence, the uh, what we saw uh, was the end of, of the rate hikes not by the way that the Fed wanted, which is gradual, you know, and, and and everybody gets a chance to adjust, but very swift because of a credit crisis. And it looks like that has caused now uh, all, the, all the other banks and shadow bankers and, uh, and pension funds, et cetera, to, to look at their books. It's actually, obviously, in hindsight, it's a, it's a, it's a good lesson to the other banks, uh, which are now looking at their own balance sheets. And in terms of the markets, you can see it from uh, the the action in gold and in uh, and in the dollar. It it shows that the Fed has most likely ended rate hikes, um, and and that's 
uh, that's the big change that we've seen. So when you raise interest rates, uh, historically, you get to this point where the markets take over and then the Fed knows it's done enough. The, the markets is, have basically raised interest rates on behalf of uh, the Fed, uh, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And so now that you've broke that down very thoroughly, uh, the banking concerns or con or confident or the lack of confidence for for the depositors now seems to be picking up globally. Now, with the Federal Reserve deciding to, I guess, you know, take on more of those <laughs> those losses directly to their balance sheet, they had I think three hundred billion within the first week, and I think ninety four billion within the last couple of days, or something like that. Numbers are going mm -hmm. are growing, so it's good to say the reduction of the balance sheet is not possible. And then with this new tool, I, I'm trying to BTTF, whatever they call it, um, that extra, that, that way of basically extending a loan for a year or so. Can they withdraw those, that tool now that the cat's out the bag? Yeah. Um, just to answer your previous question, is there a recession in Europe? Um, I don't think that there will be a recession in Europe. Um, uh, Europe has survived um, this huge reset event that they had. Um, it pretty pretty uh in a pretty good way and so I, I do see sluggish growth for sure or even flat uh but i don't see a severe recession happening in europe um lots of suffering and and, and whatnot but uh to actually see gdp uh negative uh two times in a row i don't think we'll see that i don't think we'll see a lot of layoffs okay mm -hmm. so that's europe um in the u.s i think that we are towing with uh recession this year um, with regards to your question about um, deposits and stuff, um, so um, the draining out of regional banks has mostly uh, been quailed, and and it's, it it looks like the uh, the panic uh, out of regional banks is is uh, kind of stopped, um, but it took extraordinary measures to do that, and. Uh, what hasn't stopped or hasn't been fixed is the fact that many other banks have these unrealized losses on their balance sheet. So the threat of just sporadic run on banks, on other banks, is is there. Um, will it happen or not? It just depends on if the depositors think that they're um, in good hands of the uh, FDIC and, and, the, and the authorities, then, then no need to to withdraw um so that's where we are it's it's just as always it's a game of uh it's a it's a game of trust um and it's a game of liquidity and it looks like for the moment um that what the actions that have already been taken have kind of um put put the panic to bed for now i do think that uh the banking invasion is not the real issue the real issue is whether or not we are going into a real recession, because so far um, the U.S. Mark, the U.S. economy has been very resilient to these interest rate hikes that have frozen the housing sector, which is the largest economy in the United States. Uh, they've caused many layoffs in tech, um, but uh, if if it actually rolls over to a recession, if if more companies need to start laying off, if if you go towards six or seven percent unemployment, that's when I, that's what I think the markets are not considering right now as, as a base case. And if that starts happening, um, then uh, that's a real risk that the, the, that you'll see 
uh, a real market crash where you'll see, you know, the the, the S&P falling uh, five to 10 percent in a matter of a month or two um, and then continuing down. Right. Um, so to, to me, that remains the, the highest priority in, in terms of uh, threat levels. Now, another thing to also factor in is the pretty much the stalemate of the debt ceiling that they're go, you know, they're typically there's always a resolution last minute. But it's looking at this like it's this current moment that they are still miles away from actually coming into an agreement on how much more to expand the uh, the the debt limitations. And so I think June or so is kind of like a time frame where the TGA kind of runs out of funds and that puts more of a crunch on the government and things like that mm-hmm. on top of all the other things. So yeah. does this current debt debacle also factor in to the overall economic conditions uh, when you talk about recession or or not? Um. They'll raise the, the debt ceiling. Um, no politician is suicidal not to do it. Um, the United States basically works on raising the, date, the debt ceiling. It's been raised dozens and dozens of times under every president. Um, so I don't think that's the issue. I think the real uh, issue is that you'll see the 2024 uh, campaign. Um, both sides are going to be talking about uh, how unsustainable the national debt is. And that we need fiscal responsibility. That plays in for that plays well for the Republicans, uh, which are the more conservative uh, side on, on spending. And I think that that's the real important thing to keep in mind. Uh, most Americans are now very acutely aware of a national uh, debt problem uh, because they saw inflation uh, in, in their own lives, in, in the pump and in the grocery store for a very long time. Uh, you needed to be in the markets to know that there's a, a national debt problem. You need to be an anti-government or you know uh, a, uh, um, an Austrian school of economics expert in order to really dive into the national debt. The, the regular person on the street would not know that there's a problem with uh, with the deficit. Now most Americans know that. That's why it's going to play into the next election campaign, and that's why uh, it's going to also play into the way that government and the Federal Reserve uh, behave from here on throughout this decade. Uh, And what's really interesting is that the debt ceiling and the whole talk about it being unsustainable is very bearish for the dollar. Talking about it is bearish. Talking about it makes people act differently. Um, And so if you really consider what's happening with deglobalization, and uh, the fact that other countries, other regions are looking to divest outside of the, U- the U.S. dollar, couple that with the fiscal problema that we have in the United States that's going to mature into a political issue, um, that is a real catalyst for the bear market in the dollar um, that I see already starting but accelerating in the next uh, in the next few years, going into 2027, 2029. This is a this is going to be a six-year bear market, six, seven-year bear market uh, for the dollar um, during this period. Inflation is not going to uh, disappear. We are living in an inflationary period. Uh, you have millions of jobs exiting China, and you need to, re- to uh, relocate many of these manufacturing hubs outside of China. That means for a company 
that you've already spent money building a factory. Now you're going to need to spend money building another factory and rehiring everyone, retraining everyone. We're just living through a very inflationary period because we're exiting hyper-globalization, which we've been in since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, and especially since the invasion of Iraq, um, and we're, we're ending it. So as we end it, you need to uh, create all these, what, what we call redundancies. Redundancies are just things that already exist, and now you need to uh, just move them from where they are to another country. Think about it like a very like a house that's already furnished, and now your wife is like, I don't like this. Just throw everything and we'll buy new. It's a very inflationary expense, and that's what's happening around the world. So as we go through this, and it, it will take uh, you know three to five to six years to, to really get on the other side of it, we're just living through a very inflationary period where the dollar is going to be uh, one of the laggards. Interesting. Now, I'm curious to get your thoughts. You mentioned deglobalization and deglobalization and de-dollarization kind of run hand in hand, I think. And so in reference to what's happening out east, we have Russia and China having met last week. And I guess it looks like Xi and Putin parted ways and publicly made it show that, you know, yeah. a change is coming, like not having been seen in 100 plus years. And mm -hmm. assuming he's referring to an alternative payment system or something of that magnitude, how does a deglobalization and de-dollarization play hand in hand in this shift that you also were mentioning about what's coming to the dollar? Okay. So deglobalization started in 2011 um, when the, the Chinese working force or, or the labor pool peaked and China no longer became a, uh, a country that has an arbitrage on its cost of labor. Uh, it used to be that China was uh, not only uh, one of the cheapest countries to manufacture it, but they had an, an infinite amount of uh, rural farmers moving into the urban centers to continually keep the cost of, of labor at a dollar or two. Today, the cost of labor in, in China is about $8. If you look at, at, at um, uh, other countries, there are about 52 other countries that are cheaper than China, 52 other countries. That's a quarter of the world that can manufacture cheaper than China. Now, if uh, if you can't find the workforce, then you have to pay the Chinese uh, cost. But if you can find that workforce somewhere else, or if there's limited amount of workforce in China, you uh, you start to think about moving to other places where it's uh, less politically uh, unstable. You don't have zero COVID policies, and and um, uh, you may have better port systems, etc. So um, you know I'm not going to go down the list of 50, but there are many other countries that are better. Now, uh, when you when you couple that with, uh, as I said, peak workers, peak amount of workers in China, uh, you see why in 2011 it started with Obama. 2018, the famous UN speech uh, that Trump gave where he said, look, you need to contribute to the 2% of your GDP to NATO. If you want us to be part of NATO, we're, we're, you know, we're going to take a step back from um, policing the world and, and patrolling all the, the, the seas with our Navy. And you need to militarize if you want to defend your borders. We're not going to do that for you. And then uh, Biden obviously uh, pulled back from Afghanistan. The, the Taliban uh, in one week took control and America didn't do anything. They just uh, continued with uh, not intervening. Even in the Russian-Ukraine uh, war, there hasn't been any uh, direct intervention, not uh, of troops or otherwise. So just uh, with funds and, and selling them equipment, going back to selling um, 
to the rest of the world. And what that means is that we're deglobalizing because globalization from 1971 onwards meant the petrodollar system. Basically, America will provide protection for the Saudis in uh, in the open seas. And in exchange for this protection, um, uh, the Saudis will provide cheap oil to America's allies. And when you see President Xi brokering a normalization deal between Iran and Saudis, that tells you the agent of progress in the Middle East, the agent of change, the agent of democracy is now not just the United States. And China has taken uh, a step forward. Now they, they went to, to Russia. Uh, one of the official statements they made is that they are in favor of peace uh, and, and of truce or ceasefire or negotiations. So what we see is China trying to take more of a role of a of, of a uh, empire because they see the vacuum left by the United States. So de-globalization means just that on the geopolitical front. It means what I said on the supply chain side and on the way that globalization worked, where countries that didn't have any natural resources or anything uh, to offer um, were able to thrive and become rich countries because they, they could serve the global economy. Well, now it's going to be very different. You're going to see more regional wars, more regional problems, more um, uh, alliances or closed markets where uh, you're not going to sell to everyone. You're going to sell to your allies or to people that or to countries that offer you exclusivity or longer term agreements. This is a big change because the last deglobalization cycle that we had was between um, 1913 and 1945. And during that time, you had the formation of the Federal Reserve, World War One, uh, the Great Depression, and World War Two. So deglobalization is much less stable than globalization. Globalization has its problems. Deglobalization has its problems. Normally, deglobalization is filled with many more wars because you don't have one police overlord uh, empire that allows, uh, you know, the brutality of nations to kind of quiet down because they they stand above you with the with the threat of uh, of their military, um, and so that's deglobalization. Now de-dollarization. In in the world of of deglobalization, when you deconstruct these supply chains, when you don't need to trade in one currency um, uh, for oil and and most other international invoices, and when the United States is not uh, protecting so many other countries, the other countries are looking for other sugar daddies, other uh, countries that that they can uh, that can provide them with the protection, with the military aid, with weaponry, etc. And that is where the alternatives, like a China, like a Russia, like a Germany, like a Japan, uh, Japan, like a uh, like a Brazil in the Latin Americas, like a South Africa, like an in India. Uh, in in, in uh, the Indo region, um, these are the alternatives, and now uh, the de the de-dollarization begins. I don't think it's a de-dollarization that's going to immediately jump over to other currencies, just because um, the other currencies are are just not as good. Uh, the, uh, you know, the dollar is the best currency, the best fiat currency. 
Um, so I do think that there's an uh, an intermediary period where gold is going to be de facto uh, like like a standard, but chosen by the free markets. And you're already seeing it. I think that gold is going to go um, much higher in this intermediary period, uh, meaning in the next four or five years. And as this reset that we're going through, it's a, it's basically a giant reset. Um, as as we end it, at the end of it, there will be an event. There will be a meeting. There will be a G7 meeting, a G20 meeting, a UN resolution, something that will um, kind of ink a new currency order. Um, it could have, uh, I, and I do think it will have a dollar component to it. I just think that it will have uh, two components to it, a dollar component to it and sort of a an alternative component to it. And there will be some sort of a um, an exchange ratio between the two blocks. Interesting. Interesting. Now, as we draw towards the end, I'm curious to get your thoughts on opportunities. And so you gave a great list of all the things to keep an eye on, the shift that's leading to a reset, as you mentioned. And so what can people do who's watching this right now in this current moment, keep an eye on as far as how to position themselves for the, all of these changes that are taking place? Okay. So there's something called the equity premium risk. And that's basically the amount of arbitrage or the difference that the market is giving uh, investors that want to invest in equities over the investors that want to invest in the safe assets or bonds. If you want to buy stocks at their best periods, you want that, that risk premium to be as high as possible. In other words, you want uh, uh, stocks to be as attractive as possible compared to bonds. Right now, they're not. So historically speaking, this is not a big bottom or a huge bargain in, in the stock market. Uh, we're not there. We, we've seen definitely the bubble freaking, but we haven't seen a real flush. So that's one thing. Secondly, I am getting calls literally every other week from real estate funds that offer me uh, debt deals at 10 or 12% fixed income. So when you can earn 10 or 12% in interest rate, and, and get quarterly uh, uh, distributions, what's the incentive to really be in the markets, to be in the, in the stock market? When you can earn 12% just by lending to a very reputable company with the collateral being real estate. So there's that. Um, opportunities, high yield, very secure fixed income uh, lending to me, right now is one of the number one uh, ways to make money. Secondly, I think that um, silver is really ready for a massive breakout. Gold as well, but silver, uh, to me, can jump by like 50%. It can go up to the 35. Um, I'm not talking overnight or something, but I'm talking about a really nice, juicy, meaty rally um, for the next year or so. And I think the catalyst will be the rate cut. And I think that the rate cut will be in July. Um, so uh, consider that as well. Uh, third, I think that there's a shift to from multinationals to uh, domestic US companies, companies that focus their business mostly on doing business in the United States um, and serving the real economy, the, the small mid-sized businesses. I think that this is an opportunity 
um, to, to get into those types of companies. And uh, by the way, my portfolio, my entire portfolio, if you want to access every stock that I own, excluding um, any, any super small commodity companies that are more volatile. So the, the buy and hold portfolio, basically go to wealthresearchgroup.com forward slash portfolio and just download my entire portfolio. It literally has one sentence or two about each holding and a price that I love to get into those. Okay. So that just to get that out of the way. Um, so high yield lending for short periods, a year or two, um, domestic companies in the United States, uh, uh, silver. And um, I also think that having uh, cash on hand is a great idea because we just have not seen definite um, proof of whether or not we are in a hard landing, soft landing, or recession. And therefore, having cash around makes a lot of sense in all scenarios. So uh, those to me are the opportunities. Interesting. Well, as always, Leo Gantz, it's great to connect with you, get your thoughts on what's happening, where we're heading, and uh, opportunities as well. So um, as always, can you point back, point people back to where they can find out more about your work? You gave them uh, an opportunity to see your current portfolio. And so point them back to your direction and so they can connect with you as well. Uh, wealthresearchgroup.com is the website. On the homepage, you can subscribe for free to uh, the newsletter. It goes out uh, Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And basically, in, in a five-minute read, uh, it encapsulates uh, an, an interview like this that uh, takes more time to, to go through, plus anything that I, uh, I uh, think and hear from CEOs of companies, from hedge fund managers that I speak with, et cetera. So it's, it's economic, theoretical, plus actionable, pragmatical. All right. All right. Well, once again, thank you for joining us on RT interviews and definitely looking forward to catching up with you later, especially around early summertime and see where we're at then and see if we actually have that uh, rate cut the way you anticipate and things of that nature. Yeah. So, Lior, Absolutely. once again, thanks for joining us on RT interviews. Thank you very much.